hey, we want to welcome you to the Loving the Fight Marriage Podcast. My name is Travis, and I am here with my co-host and my wife, Dawn Rosinger. We're pumped that you guys are tuning in with us today. Yeah, I agree with you, Dawn. It's so great to have each and every one of you listening to this podcast, this episode today. But we're also really excited to be hanging out with you guys and getting a chance to talk about life, love, and everything in between. Yeah, just a reminder, you guys, we are exactly in the same spot that you are. We are married. We're doing this thing called life together and we're just figuring it out and trying to have a blast along the way. Man, that is so true, Don. Uh, No one ever gave us a manual on how to get married when you were 19 and I had just turned 21. I mean, we were just trying to figure it out. 30 years later of marriage, we're still trying to figure it out. And I think a big piece of that is just loving, honoring, and respecting each other right. and fearing God. I think that's a, a big part, making sure that God is a part of our lives. Well, hey guys, this is part two of our series, Am I a Marriage Imposter? And key signs to look for and steps to take to save your marriage. Why do we say that? Because If you are a marriage imposter and maybe you don't realize it, or maybe you're exhibiting traits of a marriage imposter, then it's time to, you know, uh, really just self-reflect and admit it, own it and change. And if you don't change, I think that's where the danger comes in. It could potentially negatively affect your marriage. And so that's where we said, save your marriage. We want to give you guys steps on how to do that. Well, a normal part of us just trying to live life and have a happy, healthy marriage is going on vacation. And some of you might remember, I believe we told this story a while back about how, Don, you and I, we went to Branson, Missouri back in, in was that February, March? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we jumped in the car, did a road trip. It was awesome. Uh, And when we were in Branson, it's known for shows. Uh, there was a show that we went to where it had four impersonators, people who, you know, pretended to be somebody else. It was so fun. It was they a did riot. A really good job. <laughs> they yeah. did a great job. But we got to the last one, Elvis, and he got up and the whole time uh, on and off, he would give me a hard time in front yep. of like four or five hundred people. He was talking directly to you in the middle of his show. Right to me. <laughs> yeah. It was so odd. It was so fun. It was crazy. And it was because of my jacket. My jacket was glowing because of the lighting. I have a really fun jacket. And it just caught his eye. I think on stage, he couldn't think straight. And so he just decided to, you know, like talk and make jokes and have fun with it. And he rolled with it. You know, the funny thing is that he did such a good job at being Elvis that it made it seem like Elvis was really talking to you. He was a good impersonator. So I'm like, how odd is that, that Elvis is talking to my husband in the middle of this show and everybody's looking at you. It was fun. In front of everybody in Branson, Missouri. Yeah, it was really fun. But the reason why we bring that up is because... The word impersonator and the word imposter, they're kind of similar, but the the man that was pretending to be Elvis wasn't an imposter because he was pretending to be somebody that he wasn't, but we all knew that right. he was pretending. He wasn't deceiving yeah. anybody. He was doing it to provide entertainment, and man, was he good at it. But the the word imposter is quite a bit different than the word impersonator. You know, what is an imposter? We might as well define it right now. According to dictionary.com, an imposter is a person who pretends to be someone else in order to deceive others. So Elvis was an impersonator. He wasn't trying to deceive us, so he wasn't necessarily an imposter. But according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, an imposter is one that assumes false identity or title for the purpose of 
deception. So if you haven't listened to part one of this series, which was our last episode, go back and listen to episode 141. And we share this verse from the Bible in that last episode, which is Ephesians 4, 22 to 25. It says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Again, this is known as to not be imposters, to to put off falsehood. But it's cool because if you look in a different version, it's called the message version, it puts it this way. What this adds up to then is this, no more lies, no more pretense, Tell your neighbor the truth. In Christ's body, we're all connected to each other after all. When you lie to others, you end up lying to yourself. Again, that's just Ephesians 4.25. So the key idea here is this. A marriage imposter is when you pretend to be married, but your heart really fully isn't in it. You're faking it. You're not all in. If you're a marriage imposter, you're lying to your spouse and Ultimately, you're lying to yourself. Yeah, yeah. I think deception, whether we realize it, that we're deceiving others or we've bought into different lies that are causing us to deceive others, I think deception, regardless, is an awful way to live. And it's not what God has planned for us. It's not the great life and the great relationship with others, the great relationship that he wants uh, us to have with him. And so there's a better path. I agree. That's definitely not what marriage should look like. So let's ask that question. What should marriage look like? Well, if we shouldn't be imposters, then what does a real marriage partner look like? And I think we can figure that out from Jesus's words. I think they're going to help us. In Matthew 22, 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. He then goes on and says, And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he ends with this, just to kind of put a period at the end of the sentence and to emphasize how important these two laws are. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, there's nothing Jesus is saying that's more important than loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. Again, the second, love your neighbor as yourself. So God wants us to be all in on loving each other. And that is really a reflection as well of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. When we're in right relationship with God, we should want to be in right relationship with each other. And so this is a verse that's talking about not holding back or deceiving others. It's very much about putting your neighbor first like we all put ourselves first. And I know I do that. I put myself first. I mean, I get out of bed. Immediately, I think, I need a drink of water. I need a cup of coffee. I want to put on some clean clothes. I want to take a hot shower and clean myself up. I think of myself first naturally. And I think we all do that. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. So let me ask you, how much do you love yourself? We all get a bit selfish at times. 
but the crosshairs of our lives and the focus of our life should be on our spouses, loving them with everything within us and making their lives better. And that's easy to say, isn't it, Don? But it's hard to live out. I mean, that's what Jesus is getting at when he says, I want you when you wake up in the morning to love me first and most. And then I want you to love others as you love yourself. I want you to love your spouse right away as much as you love yourself. And again, it's hard to do, but it's so important. So what does a marriage imposter look like? Well, in our last episode, we talked about the reluctant spouse. And what are they doing? Well, it's pretty natural for them. They've kind of slipped into this uh, pattern that's super negative and not healthy. They're holding back emotionally, physically, and with a positive attitude. They're unwilling to think positively or speak positively about their spouse. Well, today we're going to look at another type of marriage imposter and give you examples of how they behave. This will help you to determine if you are a marriage imposter or if you're exhibiting traits of a marriage imposter. And I think, Don, I think we all have to examine our own hearts. I know I do. I think that I have marriage imposter traits inside of me, whether it's briefly or over long periods of time, I've had to shake those. I've had to admit those and get those out of my life. Well, the one that we're talking about today is the absent spouse, the absent spouse. Well, what does that mean? It means that they are living with an escape clause and a plan in their hearts and their minds. And the reason why we call them the absent spouse is if you're living in a world, a marriage, a family, a home, an environment, but you're mentally checked out, you're not really there, well, then you're actually kind of absent. Well, you know, we're going to go ahead and dive right into the absent spouse. The absent spouse is living with an escape clause because they continually envision a life without their spouse. So they're fantasizing what their life would look like without their spouse. They assume that most of their problems in life and in their marriage are because of their spouse. So they're blaming everything pretty much on their spouse. That's why they can find themselves mentally pondering how much easier life would be without their spouse. The truth is, though, is this. Life without your spouse would only remove half of the problems. Why? Because you're still there. You're still in the marriage. You would still be you until you're perfect. Every relationship you could have apart from your spouse would still have issues. You can't get rid of you. We aren't saying that the absent spouse is always at fault. What we are saying is that everyone has some level of responsibility for the marriage relationship. Travis, I need to realize like you are not at fault for everything. I am not at fault for everything. There's we have two we're two imperfect people living together and we both need to take responsibility for any of our issues or any of our conflicts. Yeah, so how do we deal with this? Like yeah. what do we do? How do we improve this in our lives if we suddenly realize, wait, I'm the absent spouse. Yeah. I think one way to do this is just to refuse to allow yourself to think of a life without your spouse or stop fantasizing. Stop thinking, oh man, what would it look like without them? If you have a bad habit of doing this, it's just time to change that direction. Instead, focus on their positive traits and spend time thanking God for bringing them into your life. Spend time thinking of a better life together. So not separate. Again, you're thinking and fantasizing what your life could could look like together and just don't lose hope. There's, you know, there's something huge I think it's important for us to remember is this. We often forget that much of our unhappiness in marriage could also come from our 
unhappiness with ourselves or from wounds that we haven't dealt with from our past or even in our childhood. So maybe spend time making sure you are at peace with yourself and your past. If you don't, you might project frustration, irritation, or anger on your spouse that is bubbling up from unresolved issues in your own heart. So some of that unhappiness you may think is coming from your spouse, but really it's coming from within yourself. So just take time to stop and evaluate. Why am I frustrated? Why do I feel this? Why am I projecting this on my spouse? Yeah, Don, just a quick story. I mean, you know this story well. About 30 years ago, there were some church leaders that did some things to harm me or hurt me. And, you know, it's interesting that these leaders, they they actually, one of them eventually came back and apologized, but it took him 20 years to reach back out to me and say, hey, Travis, remember back when you were like 18, 19, and man, we really did this thing. We dropped the ball. We kind of damaged you know, you or at least hurt you, and we should have done better. It took him 20 years, but he came back and he made it right. Some of them have yet to apologize or ask for forgiveness. They haven't yet, but you know what? That shouldn't matter. I needed to search my own heart and allow God to heal me whether I ever receive an apology or not. My My ability to forgive is not contingent or doesn't hinge upon other people and their behaviors. The, the truth is, I'm just going to be happier in life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enjoy a sandwich. I'm going to enjoy a conversation with a friend in a coffee shop and a cup of coffee in front of me way more in life when I am comfortable in my own skin and I have unloaded all the unforgiveness. In the same way in my marriage, if I've dealt with all the crap, the junk from my past, and I've unloaded it and gotten it out, out of me, and I'm just a generally happier, healthier person, I'm going to be able to have healthier interactions with my spouse and treat them with more dignity and respect because I I don't have all that unforgiveness and bitterness and anger that's just sitting in there, percolating, boiling, waiting to come out the next time I'm angry. Well, there are some other character traits about the absent spouse. And here's uh, one of them. The absent spouse is living with an escape clause because they fantasize what life would be like with someone else. Yes, they definitely have an escape clause, so that's one piece of it, but they are also fantasizing what it would be like to live life with someone else. And here's how they do it. They compare their spouse with other people at work, in their neighborhood, or at church who are super nice, or other people who seem to come across like they have it all together. And they think to themselves, they're like, wait a second, that person seems like they would make a way better husband or wife. And they see other people in a much better light while they put their spouse under scrutiny and they criticize much of what they see in them. This is actually really easy to do because honestly, when we go to work, we don't see our coworkers or we don't see other people interacting with their spouse. We don't see their dirty laundry. We don't see their bad habits. So sometimes we can idolize someone else and go, oh, well, they're perfect because we don't ever get to see the bad side. We don't get to see them at their tough moments in their house behind closed doors. Exactly. Yeah. This is almost like putting on a set of marriage glasses. I, I use glasses, you know, so putting them on to be able to see or read, but these are marriage glasses, ones that never allow them to truly see their spouse 
in an accurate light. Like it, it, it's like having dirty marriage glasses. You can't see your spouse correctly. So instead, their spouse is always failing, always letting them down. It can never get better because they're, like you said, Don, they're they're kind of comparing their spouse to someone that really never has the opportunity to get under right, their yep. skin or never has the opportunity to have this massive conflict with because it's just not appropriate to do that at work or it's not appropriate to get under people's skin around you when you don't really live with them and they don't really know everything about you. And so that is why the idea of dreaming about someone else other than your spouse who seems to be nearly perfect, that's why it's so appealing. But it's also like a barbed hook, you know, that you used to go fishing for fish. It, it gets inside your flesh and it's almost impossible when you start to do that. You dream about what life would be like with that other person that isn't your spouse. It's almost impossible to pull back your emotions and your thoughts of a life with that person because it's so appealing. Again, it's so appealing. So what do you do? What's the answer? Well, part of it is just to realize and accept that we see the best version of everyone else when we don't live with them and aren't in a marriage relationship with them that's filled with tons of responsibilities. It's filled with tons of high-pressure decisions. And so we need to stop. We need to make a decision to stop sharing negative things with your spouse and stop meditating on your spouse's negative traits. It's like, okay, I know I'm in a negative rut. I know I'm 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 not doing what I need to be doing. And instead, it's choosing a path of building up your spouse through intentionally sharing things that you love about them and really even celebrating the smallest wins with them. It's saying, hey, instead of comparing them to people that they could never measure up to because those people really aren't living with me in my home in a high pressurized situation. Instead, I'm going to stop focusing on them as a negative person and I'm going to become their greatest cheerleader again, like I was on the day I said I do. So we're talking about not being a marriage imposter. And in particular, we're talking about the absent spouse. So the absent spouse is living with an escape clause because they always have their finger on the divorce button. An absent spouse already has a plan to be able to divorce if they ever feel like it's necessary. Well, you guys know Travis and I are runners and if we decided that we were going to sign up for a marathon and we started a marathon with the idea that I will just stop and leave the race course at any point that I feel like it's become too difficult, the likelihood is great that honestly, we won't ever finish that marathon or race. If I know that I have an escape clause, why would I even continue on? It's those who tell themselves that they will cross the finish line no matter how difficult, painful, or mentally straining the marathon becomes. You know, those are the ones who end up finishing and crossing the finish line no matter how hard it gets. They do. If you start off to win at your marriage, but you have a plan of giving up, like that's an option, it's likely your marriage will never make it. It can't. It can't get past that point. So here's the answer. The answer is to plan to win without ever planning on giving up. That means that if your marriage gets hard, you never think of divorce or just walking away. Instead, you think of working it out through healthy conflict, seeking the help of a marriage therapist, and consistently and wholeheartedly working on your marriage by spending quality, positive time together. So you don't have an escape clause. You're not going to leave. You're not going to press that divorce button. Yeah, I like this too, Don, because um, you and I, we've done 
done a fair amount of marriage conferences in different parts of the United States. We just recently wrote another marriage conference, and we have couples that actually show up. And they sit there and they go through all the sessions. We usually have three or four sessions and they do all the homework. And it's amazing to me because those are the couples in my best estimation or guess that are probably going to win and cross the marriage finish line. Right, yep, Why? They're because they're the putting in the effort. They, you know, let's be honest. It's, it's normal for all of us to, let's say, go to marriage uh, seminars or conferences. It's normal to go to a marriage therapist or to reach out to a pastor for help. Like, that's the important thing. It's kind of like a marathon runner who gets an injury. Well, you go to somebody who can help you, a physical kind of therapist person who can help you with sports medicine. But same way with, with marriage. Again, we just want to encourage you to not be a marriage imposter. Don't be that absent spouse where you have an escape clause. Just make sure that you're present, that you're real. Take responsibility for your end of the marriage and for doing your part. Well, this was part two of a three-part series. Again, if you didn't hear part one, go back and listen to episode 141. But last week, we covered the reluctant spouse. This week, we covered the absent spouse. And guess what, guys? In episode 143, we're gonna next week, we're going to conclude with the delusional spouse. We want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Loving the Fight Marriage Podcast. Remember, guys, you can do it. You got this. Keep loving the fight. We'll see you next time.